2016, the A&E Network had filmed and edited an eight-episode series about Scientology that has never aired. We've always been curious about this show produced by Sirens Media, so in this limited podcast series, we're talking to some of the people who were involved in it. Previously, we've talked to Phil Jones, Derek Block, Carol Nyberg, and Katrina Reyes about the episodes they were involved in that tried to reunite them with loved ones who had disconnected from them according to Scientology policy. One of the things we learned from those episodes is how much this series was going to feature a dynamic performer by the name of Jamie DeWolf, who was meant to be the show's presenter. Jamie himself has never said anything publicly about his deep involvement in this project, which was poised to make him a much more visible figure on a national level. But now, for the first time, he's decided to share his thoughts about this experience and his disappointment that the show never aired. Jamie DeWolf. Wow, this is this is the episode I was really hoping I'd get to do. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for talking to me. I mean, this is a big deal, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I have a bit of nerves even having this conversation. It's the first time I've said anything about it publicly in the years since. I've done other podcasts, other recordings, never said a word about it, never said anything about it in social media, anywhere. I've really just kept it close to the chest for a lot of reasons and I'm sure people can start to figure out as we talk, but yeah, it's been a heavy thing to kind of carry for all this time. Well, let's, before we get into that, let's, let's first help some of the listeners who may not be as familiar with you as my regular readers are, certainly are. Um, you had a, Nice relationship, very close relationship with your grandfather, who was L. Ron Hubbard Jr., uh, mm-hmm. known in the family as Nibs, and who mm-hmm. changed his name later in life to Ron DeWolf. Uh, tell That's me a little right. bit about that, uh, that relationship. So for clarity's sake, L. Ron Hubbard is my great-grandfather. His first child was my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. L. Ron Hubbard Jr.'s first child was my mom. And I was the first child of my mom and of all my cousins. Kind of simplifies it. So, yeah, great grandfather on the mother's side related to two L. Ron Hubbards. And it sounds nuts later in retrospect, but growing up, L. Ron Hubbard was one of my earliest childhood heroes, probably because he was a writer and I wanted to be a writer. So I saw his name proudly in every bookstore I went into and in science fiction book bookstores and my great aunt, his other daughter, Katie, I loved her and she took me to every bookstore that I wanted to go to and would let me buy all the books that I wanted. And she was really proud of her father as a writer and a sci-fi author. And I would even write him letters, send him some of my stories and I wanted advice on writing and what he thought of my latest tale of time machines and dinosaurs. But I didn't know that he had started a cult. I didn't know anything about Scientology. I think that they managed to sidestep that. If I ever heard the word, they would say, I think you mean sci-fi, science fiction, not Scientology. And I go, oh, okay, I must have had that wrong. And I certainly didn't know that he was in hiding. And I sure as hell didn't know that he was at war with my grandfather in a war that took him all the way to their death. So all of that was shielded from us. And Scientology was not a word 
that was said to any of the kids in that house. And I remember the day that L. Ron Hubbard died. It was the same day the Challenger space shuttle exploded. And I remember my mom's reaction and that sense of a chapter closing and this kind of horrible, endless narrative of a father versus son. And she viewed it as she lost her entire family. That whole side of her family, she felt, was just devoured by this religion that they created and and propagated and continued and then even tried to destroy. Let me just go back a little bit and explain that L. Ron Hubbard is the founder of Scientology. He was a Pulp Fiction writer in the 30s and 40s. His first wife uh, was Polly, and they had two children, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. and Katie. And these are the two that Jamie is talking about, his grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., and his great aunt, Katie. Uh, and yes, by the, by the, by the eighties, by the early eighties, um, uh, definitely, uh, L Ron Hubbard Jr. Then is the name Ron DeWolf was definitely at war with his father. And that was your great grandfather, Jamie. So you are the great grandson of L Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. You had a close relationship with, uh, your grandfather, L Ron Hubbard Jr., and, and then later you were learning about how the family had kind of been torn apart by all this. That's right. That's right. So I think when I was a child that a lot of that was kept from us because my aunts and uncles didn't want Scientology to continue to haunt their own children, that they wanted to create their own lives. A lot of them were in the military. They were starting their own families. And you have to imagine if you're joining the military that being connected to L. Ron Hubbard, who was actively on the run from a multitude of government branches, as well as multitudes of countries who had active open investigations into L. Ron. And L. Ron's wife, of course, went to jail for infiltrating the United States government in Operation Snow White. So this is all happening right around when I was born. So nobody wanted to say that name. Nobody wanted to be connected to it. And none of them wanted to do any interviews or really talk about it in public whatsoever. In fact, they wanted to just move on. Also, Junior was very clear to all of my aunts and uncles that this was his fight. I mean, he started as his father's enforcer. He did lots of dirt with his dad in the early days. He was one of the first auditors. He helped write a lot of the first early works in terms of both dirty operations, in terms of how to handle trouble, and the kind of development of those techniques and extortion and blackmail and beatdowns and you know, I mean, ways to keep people in line. Junior felt that it was a real personal battle between him and his father, that he knew what his father really was because he'd been behind the curtain with him and had seen a lot of the different occult beliefs and so forth that really propelled a lot of this theology. So it was a very personal battle between them. And he didn't want his children to get involved. He didn't want it to destroy their lives. And so that was a shadow that we were all growing up in as as I was born and, and really all the way up until high school, um, at which point I really started digging a lot more deeply in terms of those questions and trying to understand myself, understand my family's true history, understand religion, my own confrontations, and, and just trying to understand my own beliefs. And when you come from a family that's created a religion and certainly puts you in a different perspective when you're wrestling with your own kind of spiritual beliefs and what you want to, what you want to believe moving forward. 
so then that branch, that whole branch of the family was keeping very quiet. There's another, you know, L. Ron Hubbard went on to have uh, th- three different marriages. He had other children with other women. Those, mm-hmm. that, that, those children have a completely different kind of history. But the branch we're talking about the, that started with his first children, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. and Katie, that mm-hmm. whole branch stayed pr- very quiet. But then you came out of high school and you started working towards becoming a performer, like a, like a stand-up comic, right? I've always done a lot of writing and performance, and I got really heavily involved in the performance poetry, slam poetry, storytelling, comedy, circus, vaudeville worlds. And the first time I did any kind of public performance against Scientology was when I was 21, and it was a small cafe of a show that I was putting on in Vallejo. And I performed this piece that I wrote, I think the night before in my kitchen, and I hadn't even edited it. I, I really was just reading it mostly from my friends so they kind of understood what the true story was because I'd be asked these questions and I really wanted to kind of put it all together in some way that that laid it all out. And this is also when the internet was relatively new, at least to us. I mean, a lot of this information was harder to find for your casual person who's just looking up Scientology, especially a lot of the the darker kind of more deeply held secrets. So I wrote this really long, crazy screed that was really messy and kind of jumped all over the place. And a friend of mine recorded it and they put it online. And then Scientologists immediately came after me within like days. And they were pulling all of their dirty, nasty tactics that you'd really only read about. And it's almost like a werewolf coming out of the forest and you see it finally with your true eyes. I mean, it was almost unbelievable because I think I think a lot of people when they come out or they say things against Scientology, there's a common strange belief of folks that they all think it's it's like back in the day, it's make-believe. It's almost this mythic thing. And then when they come after you, it makes it so tangible and so real, not to mention the lies that they tell, that they never tell you who they are. They came with cover stories to the mother of my daughter, the um, friends of mine at cafes, and even to my my parents' house. And I've done a lot of talks about those those kind of early on confrontations. That led to me end up going to Clearwater, Florida for the first time in 2000. And I met a ton of really pivotal people there as well and went to the Lucy McPherson Trust, which is, of course, right in downtown Clearwater. Met folks who were just coming out, really pivotal folks like Jesse Prince and, you know, it was really mind blowing and did a benefit concert. Scientology was all over that and then went back and really worked on a lot of my own work and art and film and performance. And then years later, I did a performance called The God and the Man on Snap Judgment. And that performance went viral and led to all kinds of attention some good, some bad. <laughs> um, and that and, was that was around that was around the year two, uh, 2011, I think. And mm-hmm. that's when I I saw that performance. It blew me away. I wrote about it at the Village Voice, and mm-hmm. uh, you and I have been in contact ever since then. Gosh, eleven mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that was a, that was an amazing performance uh, where you talked about your thoughts about the you know, this legacy in your own family. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think to this day, it's gotten like millions of views, right? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it still gets found and spread around and, and occasionally will jump up. And I get messages about it all the time. And I'm really proud of that performance, partly because in some respects, artistically, it corrected the kind of early ranty mess that I had done when I, when I was 21 of a piece I wrote in my kitchen. And I think it also really showed the refinement of, of the narrative that I was trying to tell is that if you try to tackle the enormity of something as complex as the story of Scientology, who L. Ron Hubbard was, what they believe, the damage it does even now to this day. But in that story, I really tried to focus on the story of a father, a son, and a grandson and how it carries forward. And I think that that's something that is really important, I think, to remember in terms of how I approach and and really think about Scientology is I view it through a lens of the damage of what it's done to families, that all of the trivia and the crazy complexity and the Xenu and all the stuff that people have seen and read. And that is in some respects is all dressing on top of it. And at the core of it is this man smashing his will into the world, into his beliefs. But I mean that he's using people in order to do that, that, I mean, he's profiting by destroying people and destroying families. And in some respects, the, the only other man on the planet who carried his same name, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. was, his own tale of what he does to families in and of itself. I mean, it's a microcosm. And someone said to me that disconnection was first practiced on his own family with Junior and his daughter. I mean, not just the fact that you are a direct descendant. You may not have been in Scientology, but clearly you've been thinking about it in ways that few people do. I mean, you know, the way you put things in your stage performance is just electrifying. And I mean, this is something you've been thinking about for, for many, many years, and it shows. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it, when I was young in particular, it really informed how I even approached putting on shows, probably with the fact that I saw that if you have a will, there's a way. And so to create, you know, people tell me, oh, you can't do that with the show. I'd be like, you can create a religion. You know, I mean, like, what do you mean I can't put on a, what do you mean I can't put on a circus downtown? Yeah, we can do that. And over time is that becoming a circus MC and hosting just a crazy amount of shows from vaudeville to blood wrestling, to game shows, to theater shows, storytelling. I've been a teacher as well. So I've taught everything from performance classes in high schools. I still teach now and I do film classes and writing workshops. I've taught kindergarten. I've worked with inmates in prisons and juvies and so forth. So my life has been an answer to what are you going to do with that sort of ancestry? And mine has been about trying to empower people with their own writing, with, with making a space for freedom of expression and using a lot of those same kinds of techniques, but using them to create really fun spectacles, you know, where everyone's having an amazing time. And, and, and I've done a couple shows that have specifically used cult kind of techniques in a humorous way, but showing that a lot of those elements that a lot of the stuff that Elrond did, I mean, are still used in forms of stagecraft of crowd control and the different kinds of things that you use of charisma and, and performance techniques. I mean, Elrond was a character and created this character and this persona and this myth of, around himself, which 
sometimes doesn't seem very different backstage that he comes out and can play this L. Ron Hubbard character. The danger and the evil of what he did is that he was parasitic, that he made his entire career by profiting off kind of devouring people. And so I think a lot of my life has been a real response to that and has been really going the other direction as hard as I can and to celebrate people's individuality and to, to encourage people to write their own stories. Well, I can, I can personally attest to what an amazing show you put on and, and I'll use this to bring us up to 2015. So in 2015, I was uh, with uh, Paulette Cooper and I were in California uh, to, to promote my book about her, the unbreakable Miss Lovely. And when we came to San Francisco, Jamie DeWolf put on this incredible circus night show. Uh, you know, we, we weren't the, of course it was a regular audience, but my Paulette and I were there. My parents were there and, and it just went on. It was just amazing. One thing after another and Jamie's the glue. Okay. There are many performer performers doing all kinds of different, amazing things on stage, but Jamie DeWolf is the glue in the show. And we were just completely blown away. So that's 2015, and that's about mm -hmm. the time w when uh, this whole Sirens Media thing got going. Can you can you now trans? You know, let's let's get into it now. How did you hear about this show that was going to be doing? What was the approach to you? Who made the approach? Well, so after the God and the Man, I did a ton of different various interviews, and lots of folks reached out and all different kinds of ideas and concepts and. As things go, some things go different directions and we had our own projects and this and that. And so when Sirens reached out, initially the concept was, you know, we want to do a show, a TV series that you're involved in, in terms of Scientology and so forth. And I was always a little hesitant because I've done three hour interviews with news organizations and then they use 45 seconds of them trying to milk me for any lines about Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. you know, and it just yeah. feels like a waste, a waste of time that you talk about the toll, the damage, the, the true threat that Scientology can present. And they're like, let's talk about John Travolta. And you're like, you're not listening to me. So I was certainly a little hesitant and jaded, but when it really centered on the idea that this show is going to be active, that it was going to be present tense and it was going to be working with families to really show the damage that Scientology does to families and the control that it, it exerts on its members, but that it all be happening in present tense so that the world would be able to see what Scientology is actually doing, not just hearing me talk about it, not just us telling tales or talking stories, is that you would see it with your own eyes. And Scientology would no longer be able to deny how they act, how what what they're like day to day and what it's like to go against them. So all of this was for the A&E network. And I had no idea if any of it was going to go through. I mean, even in points when we started filming, we had no idea is this going to happen or not, because it was also felt so dangerous. When you start going in any direction towards Scientology, once they, once they're aware of it, then it becomes very real, very fast. And so there was lots of conversations, lots of meetings and discussions and, you know, kind of cautiously stepping forward of us assessing what is this going to be and who are we going to be working for? And then when it started moving, it happened really fast. And before we knew it, we were filming. And so they told you they had this concept of 
several episodes with several different families and attempts to reunite people that have been disconnected. And then uh, mm-hmm. what what did they tell you was going to be your role in these episodes? So initially when we first started, there was also even talks about it was me and a private detective who I'll leave his name out of it for the moment, but that he was he had done some really, really amazing work in regards of other belief systems, predatory belief systems, and that he'd been really pivotal in taking down some of these organizations by by using his techniques in terms of getting evidence and helping families. And he had a real moral backbone in terms of, of just being completely defiant in the face of these kinds of organizations that also employ armies of private investigators. And so he saw how it was being used in the other direction and he wanted to be on the other side. And so initially we were paired to not only look at Scientology, but also to try to help other belief systems. And so there was an idea that we would be kind of partnered on this and that I would be a voice of the audience that I was never a Scientologist, but I'm able to hopefully interpret a lot of these beliefs in, in this kind of systems throughout my own family lens, but also through a lens and hopefully in ways that people can understand. So be a guide, really. And then when we started working on some of the Scientology material, that shifted to it being very much about Scientology only. There was just too much material in terms of that. And where the direction was going, it was really explosive. So it really honed down to that right away. Um, the show is ostensibly not about me, to be really clear. And I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about these families and that I was essentially a guide and uh, really pushing it forward. And it eventually ended up being in the eye of the tornado because the momentum and everything propelling after that was so fast and such a whirlwind. But I was a narrator, I was a guide, I was pushing things along, and I was really trying to help the families get through the experience. Well, let's talk about one particular episode, if we can. Uh, I've mm-hmm. talked to Phil Jones uh, mm-hmm. several times about what he went mm-hmm. through, and, and he recorded an episode of the podcast with me earlier and talked about what he and Willie went through. And he he was really complimentary about your presence your involvement, uh, your support of them. Can we talk some uh, about your memories of, of taping things with them? Yeah, Phil and Willie were really the heart of the whole show to me. So when we started filming with Phil and Willie, I think it really galvanized everybody from the crew to the cameramen to everybody involved. I think that it really became clear what was the driving narrative Because Phil and Willie's story is so heartbreaking. So Phil and Willie joined Scientology many years ago, decades ago, in the early days. And they were on a path of self-improvement, which is what Scientology sells itself to you. They got involved in some stuff that they realized was far past what they were comfortable with. And some stuff that was even verging on illegal or straight out illegal. And they started to see the dark side of it. Once they left Scientology, their children were still inside. But at that point, they had already signed on to some of the deeper levels of Scientology 
and they were left with this haunting feeling that they were able to finally see Scientology for what it was, but they had fed their children to this monster and they're trying to help their children escape. But for all their efforts, the Scientology completely had their kids under control. And it really showed the dilemma that parents wrestle with because people constantly want to say, well, they could just walk out. But it's not that simple when you have belief systems and the incredible complex mechanisms of control that Scientology uses in order to keep their members inside and also to keep from any contact happening with their family and to keep them separated at all costs. And they had tried every single avenue that there was for them. They had written letters. They had tried to show up at different appearances. They'd reached out. They had made phone calls. They had reached through other family members. And Scientology creates this belief system within its members that causes people to police themselves, but also it, it causes a theological element of control where people think that they're basically going to be infected if they talk to people who are leaving the church or outside, even if it's their own family members that got them involved in the church in the first place, that they'll refuse to look at literature because they themselves will be punished if they even talk to their, their dad or their mom. And they were just absolutely heartfelt. They didn't even want to get into all of the craziness of Scientology. They just wanted their kids back. And to see how Scientology dealt with them, how completely cold and heartless they were trying to rebuff any move that they made. I mean, we walked in L.A., Phil and Willie. Phil's on a cane, and it was just the two of them. And we walked down the street outside of the big blue building in downtown Los Angeles, and Scientology shut down the entire street. They rerouted all of the traffic. They closed every blind on all the buildings on both sides. It's literally when Phil put his cane out on the street and started walking out there, they shut down the entire street, turned into a ghost town in like a minute. It was wow. insane to see. And they did that to make sure that he had no opportunity to talk to his son, that there was no way that his son could see his mom and dad out there in the street asking to see him. Sorry, uh, let me just say for those who, no, who may not have heard that episode. Uh, so Phil and Willie left the church. Their their children, Emily and Mike, stayed in. They're in the Sea Org. Mike is associated with the Hollywood Celebrity Center, and they never mm -hmm. see anything about him. Emily is in a more visible position. She works for Author Services and uh, Galaxy Press, which puts out L. Ron Hubbard's fiction. And so mm -hmm. because of that role, she goes to trade shows and things like that. And we do occasionally see her uh, when we see, you know, pictures from those trade shows and stuff. But they just, they're completely cut off from Phil and Willie. And it was a, they were trying to come up with ways to, how do we, how do we get Mike out of the Celebrity Center long enough just to check on him? How do we get near mm -hmm. Emily at author services? And Phil was describing in his episode, some of the, you know, they put out a wanted poster on Mike and then they came mm -hmm. up with this billboard idea. And, 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 and Phil makes it sound like you were with him every step of the way during this process. I was, I was, I was trying to stay away from a lot of the attention from it because it was really their story. 
And I didn't want to be, you know, in the middle of that, like taking attention away from it. And I just also want to point out is that that Phil and Willie, when they joined Scientology and they got their children involved, they thought it was a good thing. They thought it was they're trying to make a better life for their children. They're trying to put their children on a path to self-improvement. But their children signed their souls literally over to Scientology and the Sea Org for a billion years, right? A billion year contract for their souls. And now leaving Scientology and really understanding the true facts and the real history of it and talking to ex-members and really seeing the full scope of what Scientology truly is, it's even more horrifying to them that they had led their children to this cult and that their children were still inside. And because of the cult and its own belief systems and its forms of control, that they were now cut off and, and couldn't even speak to their children, that their children refused to speak to them because Scientology was speaking through them and monitoring their calls, monitoring their communication. So they tried every technique possible and Scientology did everything it possibly could to make sure that they couldn't reach them, they couldn't have a conversation and that they were disconnected. And that's what the Scientology term for when you're cut off from any communication with your family is disconnection. Even though Scientology has claimed many times that it's not actually a practice and it's not something that they encourage people to do, which was been disproven in literature over and over again. But you see this happening on camera. You see it. It, it, it happens in front of your very own eyes of them walking up ask, to the Scientology buildings, asking to see their son, trying to track their son down. When can I talk to them? And then the moment that they finally got their son on their phone, who they haven't talked to in in years and he just gave them the the line that Scientology is gives to a lot of their members in terms of just cutting off their family for good and I was standing right next to him when he got the call and it was it was brutal I mean it was wow. it's just like it's just like a sledgehammer to your chest let me ask you something Jamie so so these producers may have mm -hmm. gone into this thinking that they might be able to produce some reunions and that would be incredible television. But mm -hmm. after, after they followed Phil and Willie and you around and you were interviewing them and they were making these various attempts and it was basically a failure. Did the mm -hmm. producers that, that you talked to still realize that that's a success as well, because you're showing how Scientology will fight no matter what to keep these people away from their, you know, reunion, you know, uh, reuniting. Did they realize that this also could be really good television? I mean, did it seem to you like they felt like this was a, a going well? Yes, I mean, I think that the producers and I, the showrunner and I, we talked often and early because I wanted to be really clear about what the goals were for this show. I was like, I'm not, in, I don't want to be some involved in something that we're just gonna smash on Scientology and start a bunch of fires and walk away that we need to be really clear what we're doing this for. Cause I'm not, I'm not going to be part of something that's trying to re-traumatize people who've already gone through hell and we're already going through hell. It's like the, the heart of it has to be sincere and the goal of it has to be really, really clear. And I think to a lot of families that they knew that as well is that the chances for a, of getting someone out of Scientology in a day or a week 
the odds are almost impossibly stacked against you. I mean, it's been years of control. You have cameras there. They know that there's going to be commotion about it. Also, when Scientology knows that you're coming, they do every possible technique that they have to create this labyrinth around that individual and also to clamp down and to remind them of the punishment that they'll go through if they try to connect and if they try to reach out. What people don't understand past that is that these moments and kind of adding cracks in the foundation is it's not only for the other members that are still inside the glimpses of it the other families that are fighting to try to get their own children their own family members out that all of it creates a tipping point and also it's evidence because scientology was denying that any of these things were actually happening and we were showing how right. it happens. This is what we're showing the whole world is that Scientology is lying to you. And this is how they treat families. This is how they treat families who've given their lives to Scientology for 20, 30 years sometimes. And this is how they treat you when you get out. And this is how they treat their members that are on the inside. We also had a team of folks. Um, we had an intervention expert and a psychologist who was also there to help the families with different kinds of techniques and to kind of guide them through it. Like we weren't just walking into the mouth of the dragon with our eyes closed, is that they've already been fighting, but also some of them didn't know what other steps they could take, that they had tried every quiet method that they possibly could. And they said, well, this time let's try to make some noise and see what shakes out of that. And I think we're still seeing some of the, the ricochets and the echoes of a lot of those actions even today. But I, th I think that the producers are very clear about it. I think that certain network executives struggle with it. I think that they want to have happy endings. And me and the showrunner would tell them constantly, it's like, this show is not about happy endings. This show is about what's happening. This is about what's real and what's happening right now. And I think that also changed quite a bit. I mean, the show really became a documentary about this entire journey for the families, for me, for everyone involved. And everybody from the cameraman to our PIs to the producers, I mean, it got personal real quick. I mean, Scientology was after everybody involved in the show. So everybody was involved. I mean, we all had, we all had skin in the game at that point. And it mattered to all of us that these family stories were heard because also Scientology was burying any of their accounts. They couldn't get attention. They couldn't get messages to their family. And also that they knew that if their family members were to find out that their family members on the outside had gone through this much work, this much hell in order to try to get messages to them, to try to show them that there was an outside that was possible, that could also transcend and break through. But I was really clear, and so were the other producers, that this isn't going to end with every episode of some happy reunion of people hugging in a parking lot. Scientology's mechanisms of control are so built into the theology itself that it doesn't happen with one conversation. It can take weeks, months, years. But I think it's the process has to start somewhere and the steps are all important and all key. But it is good to hear that the producers kind of understood where th that the failures were actually... Uh, still a success as far as a television show. Can we talk a little bit about uh, Derek and, and your experiences taping with him? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Derek was another story of his parents had, you know, was born into Scientology, had struggled with it ever since he was young. 
was a big reader of Scientology, a real believer. I mean, he was, there's a lot of these folks that when they're born into it, that they take it on and then they really read up on the theology. They, they get deep into L. Ron Hubbard's works. They ask a lot of questions. And he was also struggling with his sexuality and Scientology is not accepting of that in any way. And all of these things and these factors of really asking the wrong questions, according to the church, and led him on his way out. And it was a really painful journey for him because it led to his family completely severing all connection with him. That this, the wall came down, he was disconnected, he, which can happen, I, I think that people don't understand, it can happen as quick as a phone call. One phone call, the next day, you're never allowed to talk to your family again. For the rest of your life, it can happen that fast. One letter in the mail, it's done. It's just like, a knife drops and cuts all connection. And it was agonizing for him, especially as he got outside and he realized that his parents were just giving their lives away and the end years of their lives to Scientology. And so he wanted to get them out. But more than that, he just wanted to have connection with them again. He's like, I just, I just want to be able to talk to them. I just want my parents back. And when we finally... When he finally was able to confront them, and it was small. It was just in a back alley. It was, we were all in a van off to the side. It was nothing, some big spectacle. It was just a son gets out of a car and he wants to talk to his parents. And the first thing his mom said was, you need to talk to the GCC. Is that right, Tony? Is that the right it was the It was the CJC, the Continental C- Justice Chief. Yeah, some Scientology acronym bullshit. Heartless. Just it was her immediate first response. He said, Mom, I miss you. And she said, Basically, you gotta talk to this arbitrary justice appointed bullshit. <laughs> you know, some some Scientology role where they're gonna tell you the only way you can talk to your parents is to become a Scientologist again and pay us a bunch of money. That's all they're right. gonna say. Right. And it was so devastating him because he's just like no we've already talked about that can i just talk to you and she just kept repeating it like it was a script just over and over just kept repeating it and he tried and he got back in the car and i mean it's devastating he hasn't talked to them in years you can imagine the weight of that and we're driving away just to get some air and to kind of let him deal with it and and to help him through the kind of moment and we're driving back to where we're staying and out of nowhere our pi who was often riding with us in terms of keeping his eyes on the situation and finding out if we were being tailed and surveillance techniques scientology was using on us that we saw his mom on the freeway literally by accident we were driving back and she was on the freeway like two lanes over and Derek knew immediately where she's going. We we're like, well, where is she going? He said, she's going to go report this to Scientology immediately that she has wow. to go and report this, that I came there, that I, that her son tried to reach out so that she doesn't get punished for talking to me. It was unbelievable. So we followed his mom who was going and we couldn't believe it as she's like taking the exit and the exit. And we at this point already knew where Big Blue and Scientology was reported. 
And it was so agonizing to watch that that was her first immediate reaction, completely unprompted by, you know, I mean, we had nothing to do with it. Derek approached her and she literally enacted the entire Scientology script that Derek even predicted. And that was so agonizing for him to to watch it happen step by step and to watch the the programming of that and to just know that that's that's Amon's reaction is I need to go and report this before I myself am punished and knocked back another level of Scientology where they're going to make me pay more. They're going to spin me around in other courses and they're going to sec check her and put all these security questions for it. I mean, she needed to make sure that she herself was not punished and got disconnected herself. And so the weight of that and what Derek had to deal with was, I mean, everybody that was involved in the show, there's, it was wrenching. It was heartbreaking. But at the same time, they had such bravery and guts and courage to step forward. I mean, they were stepping face first against some of these buildings that they had gone through hell inside years ago. And they're stepping out defiant in front of that building. And they said, I, I don't want to listen to your narrative anymore. I want to see my family. And that was a big part of it was the defiance. And I'm not going to let you completely destroy me in secret, in the shadows and in the way that Scientology operates, which is to often really whittle people down emotionally with just years and years of, of the silence and the isolation and just severing you from your family. So in some respects, I think to all of us is that the camera crew was really there for evidence. I mean, it was to show the world, this is what happens. This is what's happening every day. It's happening right now. It's been happening for decades in America, all over the world, that thousands of families are going through this, have gone through this, are still unable to speak to their families. Some of the people we did the show with are still unable to speak to their family, all because of this creation of this guy. You know, Elron and and everything. And uh, let me just let me just point out, let me just point out that the that you mentioned Big Blue, the episode with uh, Derek Derek Block uh, did take place in Los Angeles. I know some mm -hmm. of your taping was in Clearwater and and uh, and mm -hmm. other places. Uh, this mm -hmm. was in Los Angeles, and I think the thing that got me the most that Derek told me in that encounter with his mother was he he asked her for a hug. That's what he wanted, Jamie. He wanted a mm. hug from his mother, and she right. said she would shake his hand. And and mm -hmm. and he he told me it was it was confusing and bewildering for him. And I I I just feel for Derek so much. But I will say that he said you were wonderful. That you were so great at you know he wasn't sure about you at first, but that you were so uh, empathetic and understanding. Uh, and mm -hmm. you were with him every step of the way. Yeah, I love Derek. I love everybody that we worked with. I mean, they all had such different experiences. They all really wrestled with what they were about to do and, and what would happen. But I mean, they were really emboldened by the fact that, that it mattered, that this is important. You know, and I think that that was really clear to everybody is, is that this, the world needs to see what happens and the true face of Scientology and the true toll and damage that it does to families. Well, and let's talk about, before we get into uh, what happened to the show, let's, 
let we let's talk about our the one really good news uh, we've had in this podcast series at least, and that was uh, Carol Nyberg's episode. Carol Nyberg wanted to see her daughter who had disconnected from her, mm-hmm. and I guess they realized you guys had come to town and Scientology had her daughter move before overnight. Um, yeah, before Overnight. you guys could even get get to her apartment, and so that was very sad for Carol. But uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, five years after the taping of the show, um, Carol heard from her daughter, and and they have reunited just in the last two years. Uh, and I told I told Carol how rare this is. It's so rare that I get to take someone off the disconnection list at the underground bunker. So happy for her. Her daughter has left Scientology. They have reunited. She has now not, and see, it's not just reuniting with her daughter. Now, finally, Carol gets to see these grandchildren. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's that's the thing I said to her. All this great grandbabies and trips together and love is all mm-hmm. happening because Scientology is not in the picture. So that's that's the great um, recent news we had from one of the people that took place in Siren in the Siren episode. But now I have to ask you. You went through this incredible experiences with all these people that you filmed with, and they've said how how great you were and how dedicated you were, and and this must have taken months and months months of your time. It was over uh, a year. What it was happened? Over a year. It was a long process. It was a long process. What do you what what happened? Why did not Why did we not get to see this show? Well, so to be clear, is that the show is finished. The show is finished. It's edited. It's done. They sent it to lawyers, the whole nine. And from what I understand, is sitting on a shelf somewhere at A&E. They've never given me an answer why. They've never given the showrunner an answer why. They gave us premiere dates. Then they took them away. They said, we're going to air before Leah's show. We're going to air after season one of Leah's show. We're going to jump right into it. Then we're going to air after season two. And then it just kept getting strung along, strung along, strung along. I mean, I wonder if if it was to keep us quiet. I wonder I mean, the whole time that I was trying to, to help the families get through. It is incredibly traumatic for everybody involved to go through such an experience and to know the importance of it, the weight. I mean, look, there's never been a show like this about Scientology. Still, it was present tense. It was all action-based. It really moved like a thriller. I mean, it it moved. You saw all of the surveillance techniques of Scientology with your own eyes. I mean, our PIs were catching PIs. Our producers were getting ambushed at the airport on camera that they're filming themselves. Scientology had their own camera crews filming us. Scientology was hiding hidden cameras at our family meetings, and we would find them. This is all happening on camera, there's points that we actually catch their PIs many times on camera, following and stalking us. I mean, you see what it's like to actually go against Scientology. It's not make-believe. They're not a boogeyman from some book, that this is a incredibly powerful and malignant cult that is going after all of their opposition with all of these dirty tactics that they've been using for decades now. And so to me, it was integral. It was like just so important that all of this is finally being being able to be shown in a way that the world would no longer have any doubt that there wouldn't be any questions and that they would see the human toll of this 
and the damage of it. That it's far more than Tom Cruise and Xenu and all of this surface shit that people just get get lost in. Because the true marrow of all of it is what it does to people, how it destroys people. Not all of the techniques and the theology and all of the crazy stuff that Elrond spun around level and layer and OT this and OT that for decades. All of that is just, that's all just showmanship. That's like him doing magic tricks. The core of it is how it uses people and families and breaks them down systematically to a point that you would sever yourself from your own family members to walk in the footsteps of L. Ron Hubbard for the rest of your life. So the weight of that, the importance of that, of that kind of a show. And as to why we haven't seen it, I mean, God knows we've all asked that question. It's been pretty flabbergasting. There's no human being on planet Earth that convinced me that the public would not devour it, that people aren't interested I think it's maybe because it was one of the most dangerous shows that has ever been made. I mean, it felt dangerous. It felt like there was no safety net. I mean, you're going toe-to-toe with Scientology. And I had no safety net. I would finish a show and I would get on a plane by myself and I'd just go back to Oakland. I didn't have any security with me going home. I mean, I felt the weight of it. I was getting stalked nonstop. Producers had PIs outside of their house. Our private investigators had PIs outside of their house, right? I mean, it was everybody involved was at risk and in danger. And then to not have it air has been a really hard thing to live with. You know, there's a lot of speculation. There's industry skinny. There's things that executives have told me from a side. Um, I think a lot of people can make their own conclusions. You know, I mean, it was it was on the A&E network. And the first time we heard about Leah's show, I was in Clearwater getting circled by PIs in the middle of a parking lot. And we had found out about her show, not from the network, but we found out from another production hand who knew that we were also working on this show. So that was a surprise to us. And it was alarming because we didn't understand. I mean, but we were all putting ourselves at risk. We've been working on this for months and months and months. And we didn't want there to be any sort of inherent competition. All these stories matter. All these families matter. Their experiences matter. There shouldn't be competition. And it's important that the world hears these these experiences. I wish people had been more upfront about it. I mean, when you go to sign, when you go against Scientology, it's really difficult to wrestle through what's happening behind the scenes because people get scared when it becomes that real. When people are after you, when you're getting stalked, when surveillance is getting enacted on you, it becomes hard to live with the toll of it. So I don't know. What? I mean, One I, thing I would noticed- love to. I'd love to know. One thing I've noticed is um, in the last, you know, six years since that happened, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I follow you on social media and we're in contact once in a while. And I, I've just seen how you, besides the performing career that continues in the the uh, mm-hmm. wonderful stage show that you're involved with in Oakland, 
but you've also really gotten strong into filmmaking in the last few years right. and you've gotten a lot right. of projects. You've done some mm -hmm. really interesting things uh, with film. Do you think that's a legacy uh, of your work on the siren show? Well, I've been a filmmaker for a while and have been on that path. And in some respects, the siren show kind of took me away from regular life for almost a year. I mean, it was a lot of times I was flying away in secret. I was working in secret. I wasn't posting where I was because I didn't want Scientology to be able to track where we were. A lot of times you had to be really careful with phones and communication in general. Um, and so it was like being in this strange alternate narrative that very few people except for my family who mostly needed to know for safety and my partner but some of my friends didn't even really know what was happening and so the film i mean i i've started a production company of my own called punch up productions and i've been doing all different kinds of films for years but in the past couple of years i've really taken it up a significant notch so I've done documentaries with Navajo Nation and done voting campaign and voting rights commercials. I've done tons of music videos and narrative shorts. I'm also working on quite a few larger projects that people will be hearing about hopefully soon. One of them is called Magenta that, that we're turning into a graphic novel. It's a dark fantasy. So there's lots of different projects. But being with Sirens was awesome to work with such a crew that was so responsive and in the trenches with us. I mean, that was fantastic. I'm mean, going to ask them lots of nerdy film questions, you know, when we get done filming. But honestly, you have to turn a lot of your brain off when you're in those scenarios because it's so immediate and it's so raw and visceral that I had to turn that off. I mean, I had to try to forget I was even on camera because it's just all happening so fast. And there, there really isn't, you know, I, I, there was no makeup. There was no trailers. You know, there was no any of that. Like it was raw. It was in the streets. Like we were out filming in the streets, in parking lots, hiding behind buildings, catching PIs. I mean, it was nonstop. I mean, we never knew when we were going to be stopped filming sometimes because, Scientology be trying to find out where you're staying. And so you get woken up at night because you have to move and, you know, things like that. So look, if I can just say it straight out as a filmmaker and someone who's been on both sides of the camera, I think it's one of the most important shows that's ever been made about Scientology. And I've seen all of them. And I'm not saying that because I'm in it. I'm saying because of the visceral impact of it. And that's something that I just wish the world could see and truly understand what this experience was like. And it's been, I think it's been difficult for everyone involved to walk away from it, knowing the impact that it can have. It could still have, if they put it on the air tomorrow, I think it would have huge waves. I mean, Scientology would be shook by it because they wouldn't be able to deny it. And anybody who's, been involved with the church would just be be like, yep, that's exactly how it goes. You know, be and it's able been to tough on you. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been. I mean, the experience itself was just such a insane whirlwind to go through and to get stalked nonstop. So that's one. Then that's just filming it. Right. <laughs> then there's been having the awareness that when the show comes out, 
that then Scientology is going to come after you and try to destroy your reputation and put up a bunch of websites that smear you and all of their secondary attacks, which we already knew that they were prepping. We already had different hints about that and what they were going to do, and, and it wasn't going to be pretty. But it's basically, it's like you're going through a fight knowing the whole time that you're about to get in a fight as soon as you step out of this one. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of waiting for that second punch to come. And then being sort of led on the hook month after month and working with these families who are devastated being told over and over that your story is going to be shown. People are finally going to hear your story. And it was for none of us. It was about being on TV. It was about the impact. It was about these stories being told and for the world being able to see it and that impact that that would have and the repercussions that that could have to millions of people worldwide. And to have that continue month after month after month after month until a point where they're just kind of not answering the questions in the right way. And you're not really getting direct answers anymore. And that sort of thing to have it become this lingering question as to why is not fun for the city. <laughs> I mean, it was a, a pretty rough experience, but it was worthwhile in terms of the people that I got to work with and, and having their stories be told and, and living through it with them, I think was immeasurable in terms of what that did for all of us. Um, but I, it's, it certainly has been hard, I'm sure, on everybody involved. I mean, that's down to the camera folks. It's down to the PAs. You know, I mean, every single person that was involved with the show put it all on the line for it because we knew how important it was. And I just really wish the world could see it. It's it's not because it wasn't good. I know that. <laughs> I mean, anything, the little bits I've seen of it is, is it hits hard as hell. And there's some parts that are almost nerve-wracking I know what it was like to go through it. And so even cut down and edited, I mean, people would really understand what it's like to go against Scientology. And I think that the world would devour that. And they would start a whole lot of conversations as to how we let this continue to happen. I think you're right. I think people would, would you know, eat it up. I mean, look, any magazine that puts a, a you know, substantial story about Scientology in its pages. That's the most read story that week. I mean, it's just the mm -hmm. way it is. All publications know this, that, mm -hmm. you know, it's, there've been, there've been so many good shows and so many great newspaper exposés and some idiot who treats it like a beat and puts out a story every day on the internet, but it doesn't matter. There's, there's never, you can <laughs> never say, you can never fill that need. The public wants to know about this group. And right. I think you're right. That's th that yeah, you, one you can't tell me that the world wouldn't watch it. Lord, there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> yeah. There's no way. Well, James, I mean, there's, James, yeah. yeah. I mean, people, people can speculate and I hope people reach out to the network. I hope they reach out to people and, and ask why and say, we want to see it. I want to see it. I never got to see it. You know, some of the families have never been able to see it. And you can imagine walking into the gates of hell like that and you walk out smelling like smoke. You, know, you wish you had a photograph to show folks. 
And I think that the just the fact that it's out there someday, I hope someday. Well, I, and also I think, you know, a lot more people would have gotten to know you and understand why you're such a compelling figure. And I hope that still happens. I think, I think people should find out more about Jamie DeWolf and they will a little bit with this podcast. So listen, thank you so much. I wish there was more we could do so that people could see it. But for now, at least they've heard this description They've gotten a better mm -hmm. idea of what this show was all about. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just, I, I, one of the things I really wanted to see the most after talking to the, everybody was the interaction between you and these people suffering disconnection. It sounds like it just really would have been a human and uh, compassionate show. So thank you for going through all that. I'm sorry the result wasn't better. But thank you so much for talking to me for this podcast, Jamie. Sure. Thanks for making this happen, Tony. All right. Thank you very much.